Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Prog Report podcast interview. This is Roy Avon. Hope everybody's doing okay out there. Singer-songwriter Tim Bones has a new album on the way on August 28th called Late Night Laments. Had a chance to speak to him about the new album and also his highly rated podcast with Stephen Wilson. Uh, there was a bit of an audio glitch at the beginning of the interview, which you might notice, but uh, we corrected it about 20 seconds in. So please enjoy this interview with Tim Bonus. How are you? Fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you? Uh, uh, do it, you know, doing okay as, uh, as can be expected. It's uh, weird times for sure. You know, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure everybody you're talking to is uh, feeling the same way. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm lucky in the sense I'm based somewhere where there's been virtually no cases. And as far as I know, not even a single death. So it's um, probably very different from New York. Luckily, as just somebody that gets to listen to music and review music and, and work with you guys, I mean, there's so many great albums. Yours among them, of course. And, and just it's a musically, it's a fantastic time in, in the most bizarre yeah. way. No, I agree. And I think, as you've said, I mean, this is normally quite a dead point in the year, but um, it's absolutely full of releases, partly as a result of the coronavirus and partly, I think, because uh, releases have been delayed. Yeah, that's exactly right. So speaking of uh, your your new album, uh, which comes out on August 28th, Late Night Laments, um, was there any discussion of, of postponing this or putting it off? Well, I actually suggested that maybe they might want to consider this because of the situation. And uh, Thomas and Freddie suggested not. Yeah. Well, you're not uh, an artist that does normally tour and, and that kind of thing, right? So. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because obviously um, Stephen Wilson did postpone his album and postponed it by, you know, a fair amount of time. And um, the difference, I think, with us was that his concept very much revolved around consumerism. And in this particular crisis, the concept suddenly seemed shot. This concept suddenly seemed irrelevant. I think he had quite an elaborate package planned around what he was dealing with. And I think the irony with mine is that I'd finished the album just as lockdown began here. And I was incredibly lucky to finish it at that point. And initially, I was really quite terrified that it was lose any relevance it had because everything kind of seemed small yeah. in the face of the global crisis. And what's been kind of interesting to me is that whereas Stephen, I think, was right to postpone his album because the themes it deals with don't necessarily resonate in this time, I was, I can't say gratified, but it was interesting to me that the themes that propel this album were becoming more relevant as the lockdown went on, because a lot of this is about generational divides, hate crimes, um, and the way in which politics can impinge on the individual. And mm. that was kind of quite peculiar to me, that whereas I was initially worried that the, the themes had become irrelevant and seem small in the face of the crisis um now it's coming out weirdly they seem more prominent you obviously when you were writing this that part of it hadn't come to be yet and it wasn't in your mind to write about this subject matter so is that sort of a was there other stuff that was influencing that 
approach and that, you know, those directions in terms of the songs leading up to that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, this is one of the albums that for me came very quickly because I'd not written a new song probably for about a year and a bit since I completed Flowers at the Scene. And in the interim, I'd been working on No Man's Love You to Bits and Stephen and I had been rewriting sections and re-recording sections. And so that really took up most of 2019. And I never really write for the sake of writing. For me, I think you have to feel the music. It has to be a kind of a labor of love. It has to be an instinctive thing rather than forcing it. And um, the first track that I wrote for the album, One Last Call, was in late summer of last year. And it just suddenly felt like I'd found a direction for the album. There was something about it that had quite an intimate and warm soundscape, but I was surprised at the quite serious nature of the lyric that had a kind of global political aspect. And almost immediately with this album, um, I knew that's what I wanted to pursue. So the soundscape defined itself, the themes almost define themselves. And I'd say that I had the title straight away, um, even the cover artwork, because what I wanted was this sense of worlds in a small room. It's somebody who, if you like, is attempting to find solace in the books, the records, the things that make them who they are and give them comfort. Mm. Yet in the corner of the room, there's that television with 24 hour news that is somehow creeping into the consciousness (laughs) of somebody who is losing themselves in uh, the beauty of art. And I was kind of aware of it in that uh, this album was written in two bursts, really. It was written in uh, the late summer and, and autumn, and then in January and February, with me finishing the uh, the pieces off in March. And certainly in January, I'd seen the very early reports of what had been happening in Wuhan. And the first track I wrote this year was uh, We Caught the Light, and that is sort of about generational divides. In some ways, it's... Um, it's almost like a serious investigation into the OK Boomer catchphrase. <laughs> um, and when I'd written that, I had a really strong sense of foreboding that this was not going to be a good year. And um, I was also, as I said, very aware of the news reports as they were coming in. And it was fascinating to me how, you know, one tiny, tiny article in The Guardian suddenly was well, not suddenly, sorry, gradually was expanding to become the entirety of the first page and then the entirety of the first five pages. So I was very conscious of it yeah. as it was kind of creeping um, upon us and, and had a strong sense of what was going to happen in terms of um, lockdown, etc., which was... Um, you know, so, yeah, uh, it was there. And, and I guess that, that, again, it's like the album cover and perhaps uh, the lyrics themselves. Um, there is this sense of the world gradually creeping into your consciousness and having quite a major impact on, on the individual. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't uh, we're all dealing with that. You can't get away from the news on the TV on this. It's just there's no way it's uh, no. It's all and of the time. Course, it's brought up other things as well in the sense that you've had, obviously, you know, Black Lives Matter has been huge in uh, America and, and Britain during this time. 
And as I've said, there are other issues such as generational divides, which have become uh, perhaps even more discussed as a result of this, partly because of the way in which the virus tends to um, attack uh, older people, but also because of what had been happening um, previously with a sense that, you know, the wealth of uh, any given nation is with the uh, elderly and not the young who are struggling. And I think that, you know, the virus to a certain extent has led to uh, a great deal of self-questioning across the political spectrums. And and the other thing, I suppose, that is a very obvious subject, but something that's kind of concerned me for years is the way in which you've had um, stronger political polarities. And there certainly seems to be less and less room for civil, reasoned, almost central political discourse. Yeah, that is out the window. I mean, and, and you know, social media has had a lot to do with that, I think, too. Uh, I mean, I, Twitter right. is just a nightmare. <laughs> it is. And, and, and it's, it's very difficult because on both sides, you see such extreme sentiments. And I think part of the problem is that conventional media almost takes its lead from social media now, which is why a lot of those polarities and a lot of that nastiness is creeping into general public discourse as well. Though I'm not quite convinced that uh, everybody is as opinionated, as unreasoned as the voices that you find on social media, because I think you find that generally speaking, um, those voices um are the most extreme and egotistical in the first place? Well, it's it's always um, like with uh, some comments on uh, on uh, YouTube reviews or, or things like that, it, or or restaurant reviews things. It's always the the people that are uh, angry or had the one negative experience. That's the people that get driven to comment. Most people are generally content, maybe, and and those people don't yeah. feel like they need to say anything. Absolutely. And that's not to say, of course, that there aren't major problems in society and that obviously I hope we come out of sure. this into a fairer world. But, you know, somehow I'm kind of doubting that the dream of the green economy is going to happen because, you know, what we're seeing in Britain, which is what you may or may not be seeing in America, is high streets basically falling apart through shop closures, many people losing their jobs. Um, and Within that, perhaps big business and corporations um, are able to exploit that. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, you have the makings of another album, right? Generally speaking, the corporations, a lot of corporations have come out of this um, very well. Yeah. Well, they can certainly withstand it, right? They can, they can withstand a little bit longer than the, the, the average small business, but um yeah listen we're it, it's it's gonna it's gonna continue uh hitting more and more places the longer this this keeps going on so hopefully um hopefully we get through it is all uh, you know all, all we all we can say on our tiny little pod, <laughs> podcast here <laughs> but uh i, I want to talk a little bit more about about the album a little um so uh it, there is a bit of uh recognizability in in the, the you know you're singing and that your approach to, you know, to songwriting. So you can sit really quick and listen and go, okay, this is a Tim Bonus album and, and that comes across. But musically, I feel like there is a bit of a difference in this, this album. 
um, right? It's sort of like you were talking about the landscapes and the and the sounds and and so is that is that fair to say? I mean, were you looking for a different approach to the to the last album because the last album right away kicks in with sort of a loud guitar song, you know that you know, um, and it's it's a bit more direct, I think, from right off the bat. This one isn't as much. I think with every single album, I hope that it has its own distinct identity. And really, I want to continue to be excited by music and find myself in a different place each time I make something. And yeah, I, I think I was aware that it was different yet again. I mean, Flowers at the Scene was a much more dynamic and eclectic album. And after that, I'd worked on Love You to Bits, which is arguably No Man's most dynamic release. And in some ways, I think albums tend to be either a continuation of what you've just done, you develop that language further, or it's a complete repudiation. And I guess this was that, that I was just in the right space to do something absolutely different and to come back to a quieter, more atmospheric music. And I come back to that quieter, atmospheric music with years of having done the more eclectic solo albums and No Man. So perhaps I was bringing different influences, a different sense of uh, sound palette to this than I would have done if I'd have done it 10 years ago. So it did feel different. And as soon as I created One Last Call, and this was a song that I kind of written uh, in the early hours of the morning and I was singing the song into my computer, you know, hearing the wind rustling outside and so on. It was... Mm very quiet and I immediately knew that this was what I wanted to pursue and uh, with my co-producer Brian Hulse I sent him the song the next day and he liked it Um, and within about three weeks the two of us had come up with various other new pieces and so for about two months we were developing this and because I was um, away for about eight weeks, I had time to reflect on it and then came back to this in, in January. And that's when the second half of the album was completed. And it's kind of interesting because it almost wrote itself, if this makes any sense. I mean, the, the closest album I can think of that I've done before is No Man's Together With Stranger. And that is because Together With Stranger is fairly consistent in terms of its mood, in terms of its atmospheres, and in terms of the fact that Steve and I wrote it and it seemed right. And we didn't need to do very much to it. And, and that was the case with this as well, that um, I, I wrote a few more of the, the, the demos completely in terms of songs this time around. Uh, and then when Brian wrote pieces, I obviously wrote melodies, vocals, and we then lyrics and then obviously we collaborated on the production but it kind of made itself and I felt really compelled to finish it you know once I'd started this I was very very eager to finish it as with Together With Stranger and once it had been finished I felt quite exhausted as if I had said what I wanted to say Um, it seemed quite complete and um, I'd written about 53 minutes worth of music for this and in fact the only painful aspect of it because as i said the the working title late light Mens, i had it from the first track one last call i thought this is what i want to do and explained the concept to uh brian the same with the cover artwork i had this idea 
in January, explained it to Jared, who beautifully realized it and added even more detail to the detailed notes that I'd given him. And um, everything about this just seemed right from the off. And with a lot of the um, music, I didn't add uh, guests in the way that I'd been doing on, on previous albums. And this again relates to Together with Stranger, where Stephen and I kept it pretty much in-house. And there are many tracks on this where um, there was bass guitar or there was a string quartet. And in the end, it was just felt that it was interfering with the music. It was interfering with the mood. So it was taken off. Mm, um, I mean, obviously, there are guest appearances. And when, when they come, I think they're pretty... Um, exceptional and, and crucial to the piece but right. generally speaking um a lot was erased you know it, it was kept very much as the original demos were sounding no that's great i mean um you you worked with brian uh as you mentioned on the album uh and and you were with him in the band plenty correct um have you yep. worked with him together on, on any previous solo albums or or how'd you guys hook up for this one just the one really i mean basically um Brian is somebody I worked with in the late 1980s and we were in a band in Liverpool called Plenty and in 2018 we released um, an album of Plenty songs because I always felt it was amongst the best material that I've been involved in co-writing and it was a New Year's resolution that we actually fulfilled <laughs> so I kind of contacted the band I think it was in 2016 and said look should we do this and by 2018 it had happened and what was great about that project is it was quite energizing because we, we deliberately were keeping everything um, in a 1980s soundscape. We decided that we were going to really make the album we wanted to make when we wrote the music. So we restricted ourselves sonically. But what was interesting is what was different. So I would occasionally rewrite lyrics. I would occasionally alter the melodies and you could see the progression in us as musicians from that time. And it was also energizing because it reintroduced me to ways of singing and writing that I perhaps hadn't used for, you know, three decades. And then Brian and I just continued to co-write and co-produce together. And we did um, Flowers at the Scene with uh, Stephen Wilson. Right. So Brian was, was involved in that as well. And, um, so this is really the third project that we've worked on together in the last three years. And before that, we hadn't worked together for about three decades. Uh, I mean, one little known fact is that Brian, at one stage, auditioned to be the guitarist in No Man. Hmm. Well, you um, have uh, well, you have one of the longest working relationships with Stephen Wilson, you know, dating back now a long time. Yeah. And uh, so I'm just wondering when you know, he's a very in-demand mixer. He does, he does a lot of reissues and, and things like that. And, and, uh, when you have somebody like that, who, who, uh, you know, is a friend for you and, and, uh, uh, you know, a musical colleague, um, how is that like when you ask him to mix the record or you feel comfortable saying, no, I, I'm not happy with that, that take on the song or can you, can you offer feedback or, you know, or, or... Uh, yeah, I think because of our friendship, um, when I've noticed this, it's quite funny because Stephen will occasionally send me mixes of classic albums that he's done. And I'll see that basically SW Mix 1 or SW Mix 2 is the one that makes the final album. And quite frequently with my albums, you will be on SW Mix 8 because I want a particular <laughs> thing changing. Um, 
But that said, I think you know Stephen is is a fantastic mixer. He has a great set of ears, and he knows what I want. I think there's a great shorthand. So in some ways, I can just give him minimal amount of description to start the process off. But once we're doing it, I have no hesitation. If something isn't working, of course I'll go back. So it's perhaps the opposite that I've noticed that um, you know I maybe get more mixes out of him for projects than a lot of projects because um, one of the things that's interesting with Stephen and I've always liked is that Stephen has an obsessive attention to detail. He's a perfectionist. And I think in some ways, so am I. Both of us, in terms of our music, can be very instinctive, very emotional, very sure of what we want, but also to the point of being quite controlling when it comes to editing. You know, we will be obsessive in getting that final 2% just the way we hear it in our heads. Right. And it's one of the reasons I love working with Steve because he has that as well, you know, probably to a greater degree than I have. And uh, when we've been doing the album years podcast, it's interesting because we probably talk for anywhere between two and four hours. And then we brutally edit down <laughs> what we're saying, because I think that we both have a desire to be clearly understood in the way that we want to be understood. I, I'm dying to ask you more about that podcast, which has done phenomenally well. I mean, that, that had to be a, a surprise, or maybe it was expected. But I mean, it it's like one of the top rated podcasts in the world, as it uh, you know from the get go, which is an amazing achievement with millions and millions of podcasts now out there. Uh, you know, when did that idea come up? Well, that was at the beginning of lockdown. Uh, Stephen called me, I think, probably on the day lockdown was announced, actually. And I, I was going out for my one regulation walk, as you could <laughs> do at that point. And we, he just said, look, do you fancy doing a podcast? I'm not quite sure what I want to do, but let's throw some ideas around. And so we talked on the phone uh, for about an hour or so. We were obviously talking about the future bites and his decision to delay that we were obviously talking about the coronavirus and then we were talking about what we'd want to do with the podcast and I think we pretty early on decided we wanted to give back to music what music had given to us and um, I think the idea of albums came up and then when I'd suggested the album year's title everything clicked yeah. so it really kind of came from a conversation from Stephen thinking you know, let's do something, let's make a podcast, and um, took it from there. And, and, and it, was, it was natural, maybe because we've known one another for so many years, so we can kind of talk about this stuff for days. And um, it was interesting, a number of musicians who've worked with us, and especially musicians who've been in the band No Man, said, this is just like listening to the two of you on the tour bus. Right. <laughs> right. So, um, and I think that's the other thing as well that I think the dynamic is quite natural between us and it's quite honest. And I think we're quite honest about the scope of our musical tastes. I mean, neither of us are particularly embarrassed by anything we've listened to or liked uh, during our history. And that's something strangely that a lot of musicians don't have. I mean, having worked with a lot of musicians, you'd be surprised how many musicians. A, don't like music that much, and it's become a career. Right. And B, 
musicians who have a very rigid notion of what they like or what's acceptable for them to like. And um, one of the reasons I got on so well with Stephen the first time I met him is that we were prepared to discuss anything and neither of us was particularly embarrassed. And it's always one of the, uh, that reason is one of the things that's, that's amazed me that no man has had such a distinctive and focused sound through the years, because I think given the amount that we've listened to and the amount that we're open to, it's quite surprising that um, both of us have produced such focused works. But then I've always got this theory of music that two types of music that kind of communicate the most to me. On one level, you've got the kind of Talk Talk, Blue Nile, Van Morrison, where it's people who don't seem to listen to anything except themselves and they are lost in their own magical world. Right. And the other is people like David Bowie, Prince, Radiohead perhaps, where they're drawing from anything and everything, yet the strength of their personalities defines the music. And in some ways, Stephen and I are more from that because, you know, we've always been open to, to anything and everything. And that's part of the reason perhaps why our music, both in terms of solo, Porcupine Tree and No Man, has often gone through such dramatic shifts because... I always kind of feel when I finish an album, that's where I am. That's what I want to do. And it's quite interesting how quickly the next album, which is entirely different, that's where I am. That's where I want to do. That um, The music maps, shifts in taste, shifts in emotional states. Yeah, I think, I think for a lot of fans that discovered uh, Stephen through porcupine tree especially sort of the peak era where the band was was sort of on the heavier side uh have found this part of him to be surprising and challenging you know because he's taken a genre that doesn't isn't known for do you know taking these kind of risks and, and evolving from album to album with very few exceptions um and done that and, and yeah. it seems to have fought against specifically the idea that you can't, you know. Um, but I think if you, like yourself as an artist, if if you do that and you keep pushing those boundaries and keep pushing that, eventually the fan base realizes, okay, it it is similar in the similar headspace. I just got to get used to maybe a few less guitars here or maybe, a, you know, le- less metal drums here or something. But it's, I find when you just open yourself to that artist. It's still that artist, you know, and th- I think that comes through if, it, if it's done right. Absolutely. And I think you're, you know, as, as an artist, you're always limited by your own abilities or lack of abilities. And you're always limited by the fact that you are drawn to particular emotional states or particular musical moods. So as different as late night laments is from love you to bits or flowers at the scene, I think it's still, clearly by me and similarly you know as different as to the bone is from uh i don't know in absentia it's still clearly Stephen wilson so i think that we always carry strong aspects of our personalities and our emotions into every project and it, it's peculiar as you're saying about particular sounds i remember that when i'd done the demo for one last call there were certain electronic sounds and certain tuned 
percussion elements that I was just drawn to. And every single demo that was done for Late Like Laments had vibraphone or marimba. And I've mm. no idea why, but I had to have vibraphone <laughs> or marimba in these pieces. And luckily, Tom Atherton, who's the drummer that I used on Flowers at the Scene, he's a classically trained percussionist who specializes in vibraphone and marimba. So there that was go. very lucky. So I managed to sort of get a lot of the samples humanized by uh, a real performer. And um, getting Richard Barbierian was nice because, of course, I've, I've worked with Richard a lot over the years. But we've not done anything that creative together, perhaps, you know, over a decade or so. And um, there were a couple of sounds that Brian had used on one piece. And it really had produced a, a Barbieri shaped hole in the piece. And, you know, who better to fill that Barbieri shaped hole than Barbieri himself. And um, I, I got Barbieri in partly because I think he's always seen as a great stylist, as a great creator of innovative sounds. Yeah. But he's not quite as recognized for his wonderful ability to solo. You know, for me as a soloist, he's in the league of somebody like Robert Fripp or, Adrian Ballou in that he's a sonic architect mm -hmm. as much as he is a soloist and um, always creates a unique sound world with each solo he comes up with and um, so it, it was great to get him involved in um, a few of the tracks of course talking of Porcupine Tree um, Colin Edwin once again plays on this album but in this case I kind of restricted him very much to acoustic double bass and um not a lot of people know that that's where colin originates colin actually was trained as an acoustic double bass player um went to jazz college he was trained by a guy called graham collier and this is one of the earliest things that he did and he's fantastic in that territory yeah no he's an amazing player um so you know with this continued lockdown and god knows <laughs> when it'll end uh, you know, do you see yourself trying more things, getting back to writing more music quicker, um, you know, doing other things in addition to the podcast or, or are you just sort of uh, seeing how things go? Well, it's interesting because I guess I've released quite a lot of albums over the last few years. And in some cases, it's uh, seemed perhaps even more prolific than it is, because in the case of love you to bits that was a piece that originated 25 years ago although we'd built on this over the 25 years and we certainly wrote significant new sections last year and um the plenty album of course was material that had been written in the 1980s and um again going back to together with stranger when i'd finished together with stranger i felt that i'd said what i wanted to say and perhaps what i had been working at for quite a number of years and I felt that with this album, you know, as I've said, I felt really compelled to finish it. And once it was finished, I didn't feel like doing anything else. It was so much um, of a sense of fulfillment and being emotionally drained that I didn't want to work on anything else. And in the lockdown so far, I have just recorded a few cover versions for fun, um, knocked around a few guitar ideas, done the album years. And I think that as I was before One Last Call, I'm waiting for that moment to strike, that moment when I write the piece or I co-write the piece that immediately suggests 
another major project because the thing I love about making albums is being immersed in the mood. You know, once you have the mood, the theme, it becomes obsessive and all-encompassing. And that's obviously as well what I want it to be from a listener's point of view. And this is why I think the the artwork, the lyrics, everything about it is quite integrated. As I said, the only pain on this album was that I had 53 minutes of material and it took me 27 run-throughs of the album to run-throughs of the album to get the sequencing that I was happy with, and uh, that did take weeks. And when I'd found it, it seemed absolutely right, but it was shifting um, the order dramatically on occasion, and then obviously eventually dropping 14 minutes of the material because um, for me as good as i thought that material was it weakened the album as a statement i'm sure there'll be more stuff like you said i was looking you have been really busy the last five years it's been quite a return because before that you had you had a little bit of a gap um real quick i want to just recap uh so the album years podcast is available on spotify and, and wherever there's there's podcasts i i see six episodes how many have you guys done uh so far we have just done seven and eight, and I think they're going to be launched in the next uh, week. Cool. How do you decide what year, by the way? It's just sort of because they're random. You're not going in chronological order here. Yeah, it, it is quite random. And um, I think the last year was suggested when Stephen at the end of one of the shows said, OK, next year. So I just had to come up with one. <laughs> um, and with the year we're doing next, 1979, it's the first for the podcast because we're doing it in two parts because we spoke for so long about it and we've still missed out about 30 of the albums we love from that year. <laughs> um, so it's going to be 1979 part one and part two. And as I said, outside of that, I recorded um, just a few cover versions of songs for fun. And uh, I think because the last few years have been so prolific, um, I've not necessarily felt the need or felt the urge and i think in a sense that's a, it's a it's a good position to be in because i'm waiting to be surprised again and when we talk of the period before doing abandoned dance or dreams you're right you know there were quite a number of periods or years where i might not release anything but i was constantly writing so some of the material that ended up on the inside out albums stupid things that mean the world abandoned dance or dreams lost in the ghost light were ideas that I'd been kind of working on between 2008 and 2014 and suddenly made more sense. Yeah. Or with an album like Lost in the Ghost Light, I'd completed half of that probably around the time of, um, gosh, even Schoolyard Ghosts, actually. Might have been, you know, perhaps just after Schoolyard Ghosts. And it was when I'd written another piece in that style that suddenly the album made sense because it had been a story. The whole concept of Lost in the Ghostlight was something that I'd been knocking around for nearly a decade. I knew what I wanted to do with it, but the material wasn't coming and I wasn't going to force it because, you know, there's nothing worse than making um, a genre album in a forced way. And once the fifth piece for Lost in the Ghostlight came, the rest of it came. And then, of course the material that had been written between 2008 and 2013 
was rewritten and re-recorded with the new material in mind. Well, everybody should go back and revisit some of the more recent albums that uh, that if you haven't caught up uh, on the uh, Tim Bonus catalog here, there's quite a few records out that have come out in the last few years. There is also the last No Man album, uh, Love You to Bits, which came out last year, and the new album coming out August 28th called Late Night Laments. Uh, single out now is uh, I'm Better Now, and uh, video, f- uh, well, it's sort of a lyric videos out for that now. And, uh, well, cool, man. This is all, it's always great to talk to you and, uh, see what's going on in your world. It's always, always busy and interesting. Um, yeah. And of course I've got another inside out artist on this course, <laughs> Harvest Tarabi and, uh, Melanie Woods from Knife World. They contributed to I'm Better Now. And, uh, that was the last recording session for the album. Was it the last one? That's interesting. Yeah. Because I, I, I wanted a very specific female vocal for the album and I had tried for months I'd asked quite a few people, including some well-known singers, and the guitar solo in Better Now I heard as being something spikier, something more in tune with the lyric, which is about a hate crime. And I got an email from Carvis, who was inviting me to listen to his new solo album, um, Hip to the Jag, which I thought was fantastic, and knew that he was the guitarist for it, and then remembered his work with Knife World, asked about Mel. And so after waiting for about three months for this, Within three days, Melancarvis gave me exactly what I wanted. So that's the thing. Sometimes it's it's ideas that are long brewing, but the eventual solo or the eventual performance is something that came very instinctively and very quickly. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Uh, all right, man. Listen, always a pleasure, and uh, I'll be in touch with everything else. If you need things for me, please uh, just feel free to shout and let me know. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, man. Have a good Bye. one. Bye. Bye. Thanks to Tim for the interview. Don't forget his new album, Late Night Laments, comes out on August 28th. We're gonna close with the lead we're gonna close with the lead single off the album. This is I'm Better Now. For upcoming news and interviews, please check thepargreport.com, follow us on Facebook, at the Park Report on Twitter and Instagram, and download the podcast on all our podcast networks and also on YouTube. Thanks. It was all about that moment. Soul survival in the heat Feelings rising from the deep It was all about the build-up And the ever-hungry beast Hearing sirens in my sleep
Couldn't wait to stick the knife in 